The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. 9.25 and let's uh, welcome Lucy Easthope to the programme. Lucy, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Liverpool? Absolutely. Thank you for the song. Uh, are you okay with that or is it a bit of a hackneyed uh, tune for you now as a Liverpoolian? Not at all. I, I can't hear it enough. Oh, good. Okay. So you, you were happy to, to, to nod your head to that. as Oh, definitely. Yes. Good. Uh, congratulations on your book, When the Dust Settles, uh, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. And let me, let me ask you to, to bring the listeners with us here into the room with your job description, if you can. Yes. Yeah, so I work in a field called disaster planning. So we plan for if a disaster occurs, we respond when it happens. And then in my particular part of the role, I very much think about afterwards. And a lot of my work is with um, the bereaved and the survivors and the communities affected. It is the most peculiar job, if, if, if that's the, well, that's not the right word, but let's go with that for the moment. Because as you say, you hope to run investigations, build mortuaries, oversee identification and burials and personal effects and repatriations. You describe it rather pithily as a Cinderella service sweeping up below the stairs. Absolutely. And people just don't know about it. You know, there's a huge community of emergency planners and disaster planners right there in Ireland. You know, you have a, a strong history of it and an emergency management institute Ireland that, that protects and, and trains those those professionals. But people just don't know it's there. I so, didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I love I love coming to Ireland. And you have um, three uh, universities um, that uh, support people, but particularly Dublin City is one of the world's centres of excellence for disaster management training. And people just don't know necessarily that it's happening. And so the book was about really shining a light on uh, not just a hidden world, but a place of incredible, um, I think, hope and industry. You know, people are working all the time to help communities. Okay, we've got to go to some pretty ghoulish places here uh, we'll do it in a second but I just was intrigued by uh, little you young you um, <laughs> you know growing up and you know 11 years old looking at the news I, I've kind of I definitely felt a kindred spirit with you because I would have been a bit like that as a kid look, looking at the news and, and, and wondering why who what where when and the big connections with history so it was the Hillsborough disaster you were 11 years old it's 1989 as a Liverpool native, you're looking at this thinking, what? 11 years old. I'm just I'm just appalled. You know, I'm very much absorbing the pain of people who were at the game. I wasn't at the game, but I was in a class with uh, several young boys who were at the game. And I'm absorbing that, that pain and that frustration. And then what gets a lot worse, as, as of course we know, is that the community uh, affected by the disaster are then sort of blamed for it. And I think, uh, you know, one of the earliest memories I have is, is my dad sort of shouting at the telly, a very proud scouser, and, you know, that somebody needed to sort this. And I very much took that as a directive and became a, a child activist and I've I've met many of those actually since I've you know I've worked in disasters all my life and uh, since then and I, I've met many children who go on to focus on things like law and politics and community work and social justice um, because of their early experiences. So how do you get from an interest in this as a child uh, writing to government ministers, writing to Mother Teresa, um, going to lectures about Chernobyl um, as a youngster, um, then getting into this the, the job you described a few minutes ago. 
Yeah, so I decided to study law. You know, I was going to change this system from within. I was going to protect families. I was going to make sure that the bereaved and the deceased, so a huge part of my work has been coronial law and the care of the deceased. I was going to change the system from within. So I did a law degree and then I got a position at a firm that, that few people know about really, which is a private disaster management firm that's called by governments and armies and companies when the worst happens. And all of a sudden I'm working on the response to 9-11 from Britain, um, we were sending teams over and it was my job to manage those teams. Okay, we'll go to 9-11 in a moment, but I want to get a kind of a broader sense, if I can, Lucy, of which you write so... You, you, By the way, you write really, really well on this. It's so engaging. And you say, you know, I look for the doorway to hell. Um, and you've got Jay, your driver that you use, who get, who's, who's got a, a particular skill in getting closer to the, t- to the, to the police tape than anyone else. You're listening to what? What are you listening to on your iPod as part of your ritual? And what are you looking to? What do you find yourself doing as you approach any scene? Yeah, so I've always used music as a soundtrack. Actually, it was a very early coping skill. Uh, I remember chatting to the screenwriter Jimmy McGovern about it. That you, you know, you, he always thinks of the soundtrack for is is very powerful productions first, and and music's always been so important. So I play things like uh, Eminem and Kanye, or I might I also use a few a few show tunes, hmm. uh, even a bit of Jerry Marsden. And right. uh, my favourite one at the moment is I have the Blood Brothers soundtrack on for those of the fan of the Liverpool musical, yeah. and it just sort of gets you in the mood for what you're going to have to do and, and what you're going to have to see. What's the music? You see, it gets you in the mood, like a show tune or Kanye, there's a big difference there, obviously, but what is the music doing to your your neurons? I think it's just, it's that, it's a very sort of primitive feel, isn't it? Music's really mm. important. And mm. It's really important for people at the moment, actually, who are feeling quite drained and exhausted by the pandemic. One of the fast things that we do with disaster responders and disaster survivors is ask them to come up with their playlist that's really? going to get them through this week. So, you know, one of the things I, I'm really, really important is the ability to turn on a, a tune really loud. And uh, that's one of the coping strategies we use, actually, so... All, all credit to the uh, to the radio shows for allowing us to do that. All right, so you listen to your music, uh, yeah. you get out of the car, you've got a rucksack or a wheelie, a wheelie suitcase, I was going to say wheelie bin, but you definitely don't have that, you have a wheelie <laughs> suitcase, and you're looking for the doorway to hell, as we described. Tell me about that, that uh, approach to that doorway and, and what you're A, looking for, and, and, and B, what you expect to see. Yeah, so one thing about the book is we're, we're really shining a light on a, on a world that people don't understand. So I'm not a responder. So one of the points about really making it clear that it's a bit of a, a step into that place is I've got to make the case for why I'm there. So I'm usually called in by the police or by the coroner, but I'm not a blue light responder. And you know that when you go into that world, you're going to see something very different. So in a, in a few instances, that's the scene. But usually for me, it's either the, the mortuary or particularly uh, graphic. I talk about what's called the personal effects warehouse, which is where we keep um, the items from the scene and uh, retrieve from the deceased, which uh, my work has often been to try and protect those and get them returned to the families, which uh, is something that uh, many families have uh, experience of, both with uh, you know major incidents, but also um, any sudden loss. You're, you, you're, you're uh, a very straight shooting approach to uh, dead bodies. You say, I've never been a of the dead, I think of them as my kin, and you talk about the beauty of decomposition. 
Absolutely. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, my work over the years has been informed by so many different disciplines um, and there's a sort of spiritual element to it. And I work with um, with a lot of religious leaders after disaster and also with people like forensic anthropologists. And so you are put into situations with sudden death where you see the body in quite damaged situations. And I've always, I think, just been able to uh, empathise with perhaps uh, what I'm seeing and then make arrangements in the same way as, you know, there's a long history of, of the care of, of, of small relics and remains, mm. make arrangements for the families to have those back. And that's been one of my, my proudest jobs. But it's, it is it is very, very hidden, you know, and, and people people are very curious about it, but they don't they don't always understand the pride that, that we take. Yeah, you were, you were talking about the 9-11 attacks. I want to go there for a moment because it was recently, not too recently, but at the, the, the museum at the... the site of the Ground Zero where part of the things they show there now are bits of seatbelt and maybe papers that came out of some of the buildings and it's it's eerie but it's all part of these are kind of the sort of things you'd be looking at but in, in the case of and a disaster like this, you're looking for personal effects rather than something else that I've just described. So talk to me about your 9-11 experience and what your involvement was there. So I was responsible for sending British teams out to work at the site in the mortuary, retrieving mm. exactly those ob- objects that you describe. And they're very similar to what you, you describe there. The 9-11 attacks were the first time we'd had a forensic operation on this scale and a promise had been made to return every possible part to a loved one. And that resulted in a, in, in over 22,000 body parts. So uh, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner hired a, a private contractor and to support them and we supplied both equipment and teams. And that was a, an ongoing rolling operation and that, that was probably one of the first major insights into how much work goes into into the the aftermath of caring for the deceased and their remains, but also the negotiations that you're doing with the bereaved and the survivors. And people people just don't don't think about that. But there's a huge comfort, I think, about knowing that there's people like me who who do. So that that was the first big test of that, I think. There there was a scene you talk about, and it's not unrelated to 9-11, but it's 7-7, which wasn't too too far after and very close to home where you are, and indeed to where we are. And the Metropolitan Police, as you as you recall, began to allow survivors to say goodbye to their limbs. Um, I don't want to be prurient and I don't want to be hurtful or, or distasteful, but this is a fact of life and this is a fact of your job. Absolutely. And this is what I call the bricolage, you know, the hidden work that goes on. And um, these are all people, you know, that, that we have to think about when we're working. Um, and I, you know, I use that story, I think, as an example of the consideration that's been given behind closed doors. It's also an example of how we've we've evolved and changed over over years. You know, things like battlefield and disaster um, honesty. We're much more transparent now with people. Hopefully, we don't always get it right. Still, but hopefully, we'll tell people what we found and what we might be able to do with with them. And um, you know, many. Many of, of, of the colleagues that I work with over the years, they've had to explain things that are incredibly difficult to families. Um, but you learn to be very transparent and open about that. So those stories help me explain, you know, the work that goes into to talking to a family about that. And I hope we've been able to bring some comfort there. And did you get much uptake in that? Did people want to say goodbye to body parts or to try and uh, make that connection? Or did they were they re- repulsed by the idea? So we see different reactions from different groups. So 
living living um, survivors will often um, you know uh, take part in that you know it's a it's not dissimilar to other examples of, of, of medical procedures you know where people have amputations for example with with the dead um, what it taught me was that um, we what's so important is individual choice if we can and that's probably one of the overwhelming lessons from from my book is however big the disaster try and keep individual choice as a possibility and we've lost that a little bit with the pandemic you know there were blanket policies on what was possible and we may even see it with things like the refugees that people think you know one policy fits all and the most important thing is to weigh up your options which is something that i do look at the resources needed mm -hmm. and then sit with families to explain what might be possible. One of the other aspects of your job that I found fascinating was the returning of personal effects uh, to the effects to the families of the deceased. And again, back to the Met Police, at one point they had this, they went through a phase of wrapping items in recycled paper that had been pulped with wildflowers. People will be familiar with this type of box or paper. Uh, tell me why that didn't work. Yeah, so it's one of those examples of where, um, you know, uh, people will think of something that's lovely and then the disaster planners come in and go, are you sure? You know, and there's a lot of that in my career. So we tend to advise, a, or I tend to advise a very plain um, cardboard box, but the Metropolitan Police wanted to use something a bit more fancy and it was it was a, a sort of artisan box with, with pulped red and, and, and green flowers and the families interpreted that, that when they got the box, there was bits of, of blood and ash in the box. So it's things like, just trying to you know trying to perceive how things might land um, and um, again I think there's a there's a huge comfort from thinking about um, you know there's somebody thinking about how this will be returned I do talk about in the book you know sometimes things are just returned in a black bin bag or in an evidence mm. bag and you know I really try and fight that that's much worse the, the, the letters I mean this is again something you know watching the the, the war in Ukraine and the coverage of it I, I don't know if you feel the same way, Lucy, but but watching the, 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 the digging trenches or um, you know ringing their mothers, war is war. Uh, century in, century out. It could be ancient Rome. It could be World War Two. It could be Ukraine, twenty twenty two. And the, I was struck by the emphasis you put on letters. If you if you wouldn't mind talking to me through this a little. Uh, yeah, so I refer to letters at, at several points in the book, and one of those is that when we um, when we were repatriating uh, the soldiers from Iraq, um, one of the things they weren't supposed to do was have identifying items with them, but they kept their letters from home in their underwear. And the first um, couple of uh, repatriations, there was a danger that those were being thrown away. So I made a very fast representation that we'd be allowed to keep those and um, return them to the families. And that, I don't always you know, get to hear the story afterwards. I don't always get the feedback. But in that case, I've seen several widows actually on news programmes talk about what it meant to know that their loved one had received the letter. And so um, we th they just looked like little tiny scrunched up pieces of paper. Um, but we were able to um, dry them out and uh, preserve them and return them. And that's the essence of personal effects. You don't you don't know what will mean something to, to mm. somebody. Uh, and often it's the very, very non-expensive um, items. It's the chewed biro in the 9-11 museum that you talk about. There's a, a till receipt that shows that so somebody had breakfast and it, it means the world to that mother because she knows at least the son had breakfast on that day. Those are the sorts of things that I return, and um, they they bring huge comfort. You 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 speak with with a great heart about situations that have often been caused by great heartlessness, 
um, or stupidity or cruelty. So how do you manage to, to marry those parts of your brain to, to, to not get too close and yet to want to um, make sure that the people of the families of the deceased have something full of heart in, in their lives after the event? That's a lovely description. Thank you very much. It is it is difficult. That's when the really big show tunes come out, you know, to keep oh, it going. You're into it Hamilton is, then, it, are you? It, it, I'm time <laughs> it do, you know, the, 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 When you're into the, all the, the musicals, you know it, it's getting tough. Okay. It is very difficult, but it's there's so much hope. And the thing is about about disaster planning, we we always see the very best of people as well as as well as the very worst, and that's what keeps us going. Mm. Um, I, I want to mention briefly uh, Grenfell because that 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 really a story you know it, it not that it hit home here but it certainly f- featured in our news coverage and it was so upsetting and it struck me that you you know you talk about Iraq you talk about seven seven you talk about nine eleven you talk about all these different places and, and scenes you've seen but I get the sense that Grenfell really might might have even got under your skin. They all they all leave their their mark, but Grenfell, as you say, very much fits with your last question. It was a you know a complete systemic failure, and I think really for for English disaster planners, it was our darkest day. We were we were devastated by both the fact that it had even happened, but also um, that we what we weren't allowed to bring our best tools and skills to the job. It was incredibly difficult to respond to that disaster, and um, I. Um, I'm in awe of that community and and that's what I also do with the book is I make it very clear you know for the people of North Kensington that disaster is as acute today as it was five years ago and they need as much support as 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 they did then and um, these disasters don't go anywhere that's the overwhelming point they ebb and they flow and they have good days and maybe there's a day to smile but like all types of bereavement and terrible pain the community's struggle goes on so I hope the book shines a bit of a light on that Um, but they inspire me the community of North Kensington amazing my my last point to you is is one I'm echoing a point you make yourself in the book you describe yourself as a pessimistic optimist Uh, on this the the 30th of March 2022 where does the scale tip towards is it pessimism or optimism well we balance it completely all the time so you know we're already looking ahead to some dark times it's a very difficult time economically you mentioned ukraine we've got a lot to manage there but you've also seen when we when we originally planned for the pandemic and that's in there too we couldn't we couldn't dare to believe that communities would be as brilliant as they had. We, we hoped they would, and we had a lot of research to suggest they would, but to see what we've been able to do for each other and as neighbours. Um, so it, I'm optimistic about my fellow neighbour, and, and I continue to be hopefully pessimistic. And you need people like me because we're ahead of the game, and at local level, as I say, you have a very strong disaster planning community, and please celebrate them and find more, more out about them. Uh, the final comment comes from a listener who says this conversation is fascinating. I'm sure it's comforting for the families of the dead to know that someone is thinking of them and the link and connection that they have with their loved ones and making sure that there is an honouring of their people. What a beautiful person uh, that is referring to you, Lucy. Um, will you come and see us in Dublin next time you're in town? I'd love to have oh, a, have a longer chat to. with you. Yeah, let's do that. Yes, please. A pleasure to Thank talk you. to you. And thanks for your time this morning. Congratulations on your wonderfully insightful book. Thank you very much. All of it. That's uh, Lucy Easthope joining us uh, this morning. And the book is called When the Dust Settles, uh, the stories of love, loss and hope from an expert in disaster. And as you can tell from 
Yeah, listening to Lucy there, she she's an extraordinarily interesting person, and her job is is uh, while it might be a little grisly or ghoulish, it's certainly one that has uh, a great streak of kindness and and uh, heart running through it. And as Sinead Moriarty, a great Irish author, uh, was on to say, I loved uh, Lucy's book and just chose it for the must read Spring Book Club. A fascinating career, she says. Her compassion for the victims of disaster and trauma shines through. Well said, Sinead. I hope you're well today. It's 16 minutes or well, pretty much a quarter to 10.